Hi, my name is Susan. I've been arrested 32 times just for listening to people talk with each other. The problem was I used to hide in the bushes outside the windows of people's homes to enjoy listening to strangers talk to each other. It's just something I like to do. I get bored and lonely sometimes, you know. Hey, Susan, don't do all that. There's another way to enjoy random conversations? Now, thanks to the podcast show, I can enjoy listening to conversations with strangers and learn something new every week. No more listening outside the window just to enjoy a good conversation. Tune in weekly on Wednesdays and subscribe for updates on your favorite platform to the Toddcast show and help our podcast family continue to grow and share around the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Toddcast show. My name is Todd Mira, your host, and I'm so excited to be here with all of you. The Toddcast show is dedicated to exploring the human condition through conversation with strangers. We explore the positive, interesting, and oftentimes shocking side of human nature. In each episode of the Toddcast show, I talk with strangers in a down-to-earth, old-school, and heartfelt way about their life. Nothing is ever scripted, everything is spontaneous, positive, and we never discuss politics. You won't know what to expect next. Join in the conversation to laugh, love, learn, and grow with others around the planet. Who will I call next? Tune in to find out every Wednesday at midnight Pacific or for playback anytime on your favorite podcast listening platform. And stay connected with us at ToddCastShow.com. I am joined today by a man named Terry Tucker. And Terry is a really interesting guy with a lot of things to share. How are you doing this morning, Terry? I'm great, Todd. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Oh, my pleasure, man. It is. And uh, tell us where you're calling from today. Denver, Colorado. Oh, no way. Wow, that's great, man. Where weed is legal, right? Yeah, and uh, if the voters get their way in the state, so will mushrooms be legal as well this this time. (laughs) Wow, mushrooms. What's your thought on uh, that kind of thing? You know, I spent a number of years as a drug cop, and, and I'm not... I'm not a big fan. I, I, I read somewhere recently that the state troopers, the vast majority of their DUIs now are are not alcohol related; they're drug related. So, oh, really? It kind of scares you to think that you know you're driving around and you know the person next to you or the person coming up at 80 miles an hour behind you may be high uh, a little mushrooms. high instead of a little drunk. Wow, dude. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, actually. Um, that's interesting. So you were a law enforcement officer before, or are you still a police officer now? No, I was a law enforcement officer a number of years ago. I, I've been out of it for quite a while. But yeah, one of the things I did was uh, I, I was an undercover narcotics investigator. And, and most people laugh at that because if you knew me, I'm six foot eight inches tall. So, you know, oh, really? undercover is kind of like, really? <laughs> like you couldn't, you know. <laughs> The undercover is like, hey, that neon sign over there. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and, and the funny thing about that is, is I never changed my appearance. I never grew a beard. I never grew my hair long. I never did anything like that. And what I always tell people is what motivates the illicit drug industry, and, and it is absolutely an industry, is greed. And as long as you have money, 
you'll find somebody that'll sell you drugs. So mm -hmm. I didn't have to change my appearance to do that. That's so crazy. You know, it's funny that you say that. Um, just a, a short aside, um, you know, when I was 11, and this is going to be a stark contrast from your story, I'm sure, but when I was 11, I was introduced to marijuana, and I was taking Ritalin at the time as a hyperactive child, and boy, I'll tell you, the pot was the greatest thing ever, man. It really made a difference, and, you know, uh, they say it's a gateway drug, may or may not be true. You know, I did experiment with other things. You know, I tried the mushrooms and acid. Acid was a really great experience. I have to say, like, life-changing, literally life-changing overnight. And um, I suppose it's different for different people. You know, I've always been a good kid. Um, I mean, a bad good kid, hyperactive. So <laughs> there's nothing really good about that. But uh, I was never an evil child. You know, it's like there's evil children that steal and hurt and cause pain and anxiety. I, I didn't do any of that stuff. I just caused pain and anxiety by accident, <laughs> by design of my bad behavior, you know. Um, but that's being a child and all that stuff. But I will say that it's really interesting because um, I've always been one of those folks like yourself that, you know, probably looks pretty straight-laced. And, you know, half the times they thought I was a cop, but they still let me in. And everything was fine. So you're, you're exactly right. And I always thought that was a weird experience. And I remember the first time I saw cocaine and, uh, in high school it was, and it was like some Mexican guy that was like tough looking and all. And I mean, we're talking way out of my league at the time. I, you know, was afraid of things like that, you know, and I was raised to stay away from hard drugs you know, mushrooms and acid to me, it's debatable whether or not those are really hard drugs, but like, uh, you know, other things, I mean, we've got fentanyl now for God's sakes, but that's a whole nother story, man. So I remember when I first saw it, it scared me and I, I didn't really like it, you know, it was like, wow, you know, but then I realized like, this is what it's about, you know, and the guy had a rock that was the size of like a softball and I I just was like, holy shit, dude. I think I left actually not long after that. I was there visiting another friend and it was like, oh, I got to go. <laughs> yeah. But but weird experience, you know, and it's just different. You can almost feel the vibes, you know, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to come back to that. So as a law enforcement officer, I have lots of questions, but let's find out how you came to be that guy. Because, I mean, you know, you're not born with a baton and a badge, right? No, I, I wasn't. Actually, I, I was born on the south side of Chicago. I am the oldest of three boys. As I said, I, I'm, I'm six foot eight. I have a brother who's six foot seven, who wow. was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame. Another brother who's six foot six, who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six five. So I sort of joked that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayers <laughs> chance you were going to see anything that was going on, you know, You're, in front of you. <laughs> you were the reminder for everyone to keep looking up, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I always say it was, you know, it was our five foot eight inch mother that was always the boss. You know, it didn't matter how yeah. strong we were. Oh, yeah. mom, you know, mom said that's the way it went. So uh, I was fortunate enough to go to college and play uh, Division One basketball. I, I played at the Citadel, a small NCAA Division I school. Graduated from college, was the first person in my family to actually graduate from college. Moved home to find a job. And I'm really going to date myself now. This is long before the quick internet question. was available. Quick, you know, quick question before you continue. Sure. Were your parents whole through all this? Did you grow up with two parents? or? I did. I grew up with great parents. My mom and dad right. were 
you know, I, I used to say my mom and dad did what what I call divide and conquer parenting. You know, it'd be like Terry's got a game over here on this night, and you know, the same night Larry's got practice over here. So dad's going to this, mom's going to that. So we were always, you know, right running on. in a million different directions. And I, I swear my mom lived at the grocery store because you know, when you <laughs> got had three boys room. that are you know growing and active, she was always getting milk and meat and and, and that kind of stuff. So. That yeah, is very, awesome. very fortunate to have two great parents growing up. That is really great. What a blessing. I was just curious, and I always like to find out because I think that, you know, I grew up in a single parent household without my father, and I noticed, you know, certain things in my life. But I also realized, you know, as I grow older, other people struggle with different things when they come from single parent homes. So I'm always intrigued by the differences, but similarities between people that do come from whole families and there is a very interesting difference there. So we'll explore that a little bit as well. But you were saying you were in Notre Dame? or My, your my brother, brother went to Notre Dame. I played, Notre Dame. I, I played at a military college in South Carolina called the Citadel. Um, and then when I graduated, you know, I moved home to find a job. I, like I said, was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Fortunately, I did find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain. Oh, really? Yeah, in their marketing wow. department. That's uh, so cool. Unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different oh, forms of cancer. Um, professionally, as I said, started out at Wendy's, became a hospital administrator after that. And then I made the major pivot to become becoming a police officer. And as I said, part of that was working undercover narcotics. I was also a SWAT team hostage negotiator during no my way. time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, dude, that's so cool, man. I've I've seen every cop show there is. Like, I still look for the new ones, but yeah, there's... Oh, dude, yeah, that sounds exciting. And uh, so you experienced law enforcement in a really big way. I did. I, I did. My, uh, my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924, to 1954. So it was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United oh, States. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. What kind during of gun the, did he, what, what kind of gun did he carry? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I have his, I have his gun. He was actually shot in the line of duty with the gun, um, wow. taking a homicide suspect back to the lockup. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle, but that was, you know, I kind of wanted to go down that route. I kind of wanted to follow in his footsteps. And my dad, always yeah. remembered the stories that my grandmother told my dad was an infant at the time of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. And let's face it. You know, trauma mm -hmm. medicine in 1933 was a whole lot different than oh, yeah. trauma medicine in 2022. So um, yeah. when I expressed an interest in doing that, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out and get a great job, mm. get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my dad wanted. That wasn't the path that I felt I was supposed to take. So I had that dilemma when I graduated. It was, well, I know you're dying, dad, but sorry, I'm going to go blaze my own trail or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do. So if you understand the backstory now, you can kind of understand why my first two jobs were in business because that's yeah. what my dad wanted me to do. I, I sort of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams and became a police officer. That's really cool, man. Wow. And uh, so he wasn't living when you went into the academy? No, no. Oh, I see. And uh, you're married, I take it. 
I am. Been married for almost 30 years now. We have one uh-huh. child, a daughter who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. Awesome. Is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Wow, that's so bitching, dude. And you're not holding her back in the least little bit. You're going to do the opposite of what your father did, huh? Uh, well, it, it's funny. Maybe it's not funny, but she she unfortunately got my height. She's six foot two, and she has an <laughs> NBA three point shooting range jump shot. <laughs> and she went to the academy to play basketball. That that's how she got in, and uh, wow. ended up messing up her knee or freshman year. Had to have surgery and didn't play after that, but got the education and is doing great now. I always say she takes after her mother, not her dad. So. Good for her. Could you see her going into law enforcement? <clears throat> no. Uh, good. No. No, I, I, I don't. I, I mean, I think she, you know, she enjoyed some of the stories I told. Obviously, she was young when I when I was doing that, but I, I didn't, you know, tell her a lot of the stuff I saw. But no, I, I think she's going to major. You know, she's going to kind of do her own thing, whether that's you know, stay in space force, stay in the military, get out, you know, be a civilian contractor. I, I don't know. I mean, the the world is really her lots oyster to decide what she wants to do. Yeah, lots of options out there for yeah. sure, man. And that doesn't even have to leave the house to do it. <laughs> no, no. You know, what a what a crazy world, you know. I mean, imagine is you know you're a little bit older, not much. I'm fifty. Uh, may I ask your age? Sixty-two. Okay, cool. So we're close, but in our youth, you know, things were so different we could never imagine. You know, it's impossible to even fathom it. You know what I mean? I remember how bitching those new cell phones were that came in the big bricks. Remember? <laughs> you probably saw a few of those in your drug dealing days. You know? Like, uh, oh, hey, that guy over there, he's got the phone. You know, and the pagers and all. It's so yep. funny. Um, hey, just for entertainment's sake, and quite frankly, this is a little bit of my own uh, mental masturbation, um, but the reality is that, you know, I really have a lot of respect for law enforcement officers and I think they get a bad name and, you know, today's society, there's a lot of conflict out there in different ways that cause people to have different viewpoints that seem to throw people under the bus that are out there sacrificing their lives and their families and their future every day to protect others. And that really kind of disturbs me. And I know that there's some folks that believe that they have good reason for it. And, you know, there's uh, evidence, you know, that we've all seen. There's bad cops and everything. But, like, for the most part, cops are good, man. They're people. And, you know, I've seen it enough in my life to know. And I've had a couple of instances where police have come to my rescue. And it's one of the reasons I love you so much. It's like, uh, you know, holy crap, you know. It's like I would have had to shoot that person myself if you didn't come, you know. And it's like that's the way it was in the old days. Um, so I just want to, you know, kind of maybe talk a little bit about your life as a police officer and some thoughts and feelings and maybe some difficult times that you had and what it's really like, you know, to be in that position. Um, and, you know, part of what I share this for is like recently we had a sheriff's deputy. He was a sergeant, actually, a really nice guy. And I actually met him a couple of times. I live in a small town where you can run into the local cops at the Circle K or the dollar store all the time, you know, and very nice people. And uh, I, I remember this guy because he was really positive and he just was different. And like he wore a hat, like a cap. And, you know, I remember seeing him on the news when he was killed in the street, like 15 miles from here by some jackass that was uh, getting served on a warrant, you know, a 
perfectly benign, you know, nothing too big. It was like a burglary warrant, I think. And, you know, shouldn't have been a big deal, but the guy was in the middle of the street and got gunned down by this jackass. So, you know, I, I mean, when I think of things like that, it just breaks my heart, man. And I just want to make sure that there's an opportunity for people out there that do still have a heart and it hasn't shriveled up into a raisin uh, to understand this thing, you know, and put it in perspective because, you know, I think there's a lot of misconception out there. I won't say misinformation. That's a, that's a naughty word, but uh, a lot of misconception. So when you became a law enforcement officer, let me just play with this. If you don't mind, is that sure. okay? Can we kind of explore a little bit? Um, what was it that you really felt aside from your father passing and all of that and his history and background that really led you to want to serve in that capacity? Because it is a position of service. Make no mistake about it. It, it is. You're absolutely right. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I always tell people, like, think about your job. And if your job was this, one, you made less money than a plumber, two, nobody wanted you around, and three, everybody lied to you, how long would you do that job? And, you know, most people are like, oh, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't do it very long. It's like, well, that's what a job in law enforcement is like. You know, you make less money than a plumber. When when you're there, it's never a good thing. I mean, you're pulling somebody over to give them a ticket to try to get them to slow down or you're knocking on somebody's door to say, hey, call the hospital. Grandma died and they've been trying to get a hold of you. It's never a positive thing when the police are there. Fire, on the other hand, everybody loves a fireman because right. you know, they're, 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 they, they're they, have a, they have a calendar, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or at least I never saw a calendar. And then finally, you know, people lie to you all the time because they want you to believe their story so you'll take the other person to jail. And so you really have to be a person who has, you know, you want to serve. It's an altruistic thing. It's a calling. Because if you don't, you're going to be miserable. And I've certainly worked with cops that shouldn't have been cops. And we kind of find a way to weed those people out. But the whole situation of, you know, well, I'm going to go out today and I'm going to shoot a black guy. I, I'm sorry. That that's doesn't just, happen. It doesn't happen. I mean, to shoot anybody is is incredibly traumatic. I was talking to one of my old uh, SWAT team buddies last night, and we were talking about an individual who we both worked with when we came on. And this person is now a captain. And... He was this person was involved in a shooting. It was a good shooting. He shot and killed the guy. And, and it was, you know, he had no choice. The guy left him no opportunity. But he's never, I don't think he's ever recovered from that. And that was probably 20 years ago. Yeah. And so it, it's not like we just feel, you know, it's not like the wild, wild west where we go out and start shooting people and well, oh, that's the way it is. No, those those are people. You know, they have people that love them. And I don't care how bad they are, they're still human beings. And we never want to do that. That's always the absolute positive last thing that we want to do. And that's a matter of conscience on your part. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've buried several police officers. I've been to several funerals, you know, and I, I've also been involved, you know, where I, on the peripheral of, of shootings where, you know, I had to, to be with an officer that shot somebody and things like that. I mean, we never leave them alone after that. You know, we always want somebody with them. And so, yeah, I've seen, I've seen a lot of sides of that and, and it's nobody wins, you know, it's kind of like divorce, you know, sometimes divorce is necessary, but 
nobody wins in a divorce. You know, everybody loses. You know, it's weird. Um, and it's, you know, typical, I guess, but we jumped right to shootings, right? Like that was the go-to. What's worse than a shooting, you think? What do you think is a worse experience for somebody than actually to be engaged in a life-threatening, you know, gun battle as I, I, as a police officer? I don't know. I, I mean, you know, if you figure the average gun battle lasts about two and a half seconds and takes place in the span of about 10 to 12 feet, you know, it's over before it begins, you know, mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways. This isn't, you know, like I said, we're not, you know, going to go 50 paces and then turn to fire. <laughs> this is bang, you know, bang, bang, and it's over. Yeah. But it, it's, it happens very quickly, but the ramifications last a lifetime. Uh, whether right. you shoot and kill somebody or whether you shoot and wound somebody, pulling that trigger is is a horrible thing. But it's yeah. something that we have to we understand that that's something we have to do. And and we've certainly seen the ramifications of people shooting each other. I can't tell you how many people I've seen dead, you know, from gunshot wounds. But, yeah. you know, I, I mean, there's a family that's got to mourn that person now. There's a family yeah. that has to bury that person and, and, and deal with the consequences. So it, it's, it's ugly. That's kind of what I was alluding to is like, uh, you know, most of us think, oh, getting shot or stabbed or something seems like the worst thing. But, you know, there's also car accidents and lost children and, uh, you know, uh, family members that uh, have dementia that wander off and all kinds of other things that can really be quite, you know, hair-raising as well. Um, that's kind of where I was going with that. So, like in a nonviolent scenario, what would you say would be the most memorable experience that you can recall as a law enforcement officer in a nonviolent capacity? I, I'll give you two. My, when I when I started out, I was a police officer. I was a reserve police officer in the city of Santa Barbara. In the very first run that I ever got, I was with my training officer, and we were called to uh, a Burger King. And this individual had been in, in the county jail for, I don't know, a year, 18 months. And he had had uh, a certain uh, drug habit. And when he got out, he thought he should have that same habit. Well, you know, he'd been in there for over a year. So he had detoxed. So his body wasn't able to handle that. So literally my first run was to the restroom of a Burger King where the guy was dead on the toilet with the syringe still in his arm. Good so, Lord. You know, I, I mean, it was like he went out and wow. bought what he thought he was supposed to have, you know, before he got a, before he went into prison or went into jail and then, yeah. you know, put it in his arm and his body wasn't ready for it and it killed him. So that yeah, was the me. first one as a reserve officer. My first one as a full time officer, you, you, you just kind of mentioned it. And it was it was sort of funny in a way, but it was I worked nights my entire career. So, I mean, it was probably, I don't know, 12, one o'clock in the morning. And this couple calls and they're like, some guy just walked into our house. You're like, what, what do you mean? It's like some old man just walked into our house and sat down on our couch and is watching television. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So, I mean, we had to go and, you know, we had no identification on him. There was a, a, an uh, elderly community home in the neighborhood. We thought he was from there. It turned out he wasn't. Uh, we tried for hours to figure out who he was or where he, you know, and, and couldn't. So we basically took him back to the district and uh, there was a desk person there and we had him sit with the desk person because, I mean, obviously there were other runs and things like that that we had to take care of and couldn't, 
you know, basically babysit this person until we figured out, you know, where he came from or his family woke up the next morning. It's like, where's grandpa, you know, <laughs> and so made a crazy. report. It's like, well, we've got him here. He's safe. So. Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Um, I wasn't planning to do this, but you just reminded me of a story uh, I'll share with you as well. Uh, because as an officer, you see things from one side and you're lucky to get the truth, right? Like, I mean, right. if you can. So here's something kind of funny from the past that happened to a friend of mine. So I have a really close friend. I've known him for a real long time. Good guy, real good guy. And uh, when we met, we lived in Vista, California, and we uh, lived in this apartment complex. And it was all right. I mean, back then, you know, it wasn't really, you know, it's probably a ghetto now and like dangerous, but like back then it really wasn't that bad. They were lower, you know, cost apartments, but they were still pretty nice, you know? And so anyway, I met this buddy and like we got to be friends or whatever. And he had this roommate, he was this black guy and he was like a super street, you know, kind of like, um, what's the character on Saturday Night Live? He's always talking about crevassier and romance and all that he's really funny um i can't think of his name but he's a really funny guy he this guy reminded you of that guy he was just hilarious like wherever he went humor followed but he was also just like kind of a little badass guy and everything so anyway my my buddy and him were roommates and they were sitting on their couch and their upstairs apartment towards the back side of the complex on the side it was a big complex as you come in, they were like to the left and over to the back, kind of in the middle. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it wasn't like on the outlying, you know, on the other side of the fence. And so they're sitting there. They never locked their door. They were smoking some weed, you know, and it was no biggie, but that's what, you know, we all did back then. And uh, they were sitting on their couch and out of nowhere, somebody comes walking in to their apartment, sits down on the couch, literally like right next to them and starts smoking crack. And they had never seen this guy before. They didn't know who he was. And they're like, they looked at each other and they just let him finish. And the guy got up and left and they never saw him again. Like, is that wow. the craziest thing? Like, I mean, come on, man. Like, what in the hell? Yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then there was one time, um, this, this might entertain you just a little bit, but I was an avid marijuana smoker in high school and it was good for me. And you know, it seemed to work pretty well for uh, my anxiety and, and energy level management and all that kind of crap and whatever. But uh, we used to buy from this guy and he was this Rastafarian guy. And um, <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, okay. Two quickies really quick and then we'll get back to business. But um, the first time I met him, I was with, uh, I was a junior, maybe a senior in high school. And I was with my friend and he was a foreign exchange student from Finland. He was this really interesting guy named Yoni Hudelainen. I'll never forget him. And uh, so we were off looking to go buy some weed and we didn't have a car. And so we called a cab and uh, took it to this place called Strawberry Hill. And Strawberry Hill and Vista was this place where you everybody knew you could go buy weed from the Mexicans there. And so you drive up on this dirt road and there'd be like a little farmhouse thing. You'd pull up there. Some guy would come out and you had to say it in Spanish. But, you know, it was always dime bags for us. So it was like uno dias, por favor, you know, dos dias. And they'd come out with a big brown bag full of marijuana options. And you pick the one you want. You give them the money and you drive away. Right. And so uh, that was how we used to buy weed in high school. And uh, so... We took a cab 
And we're in the cab with this black guy, and uh, he's like really kind of funky. He's got, you know, the funky in a good way, like, you know, like, wow, this guy's a character, and he's got dreadlocks and everything. And, you know, it looks like Mr. Rastafari. And uh, at the time, that was very appealing. I was a high school stoner. I mean, come on, man, that was like my hero. And so he's like, where do you want to go? And we're like, Strawberry Hill. And he looked in the mirror. He said, Strawberry Hill? What's that? And, uh, and we told him, and he goes, uh, really? And so we made it like a mile from my house, and we told him we were going to buy weed. We're like, yeah, we want you to take us so we can buy some weed. And he was smoking a pipe, you know, and uh, it didn't really occur to us what might be in the pipe. I don't know, but like he was smoking something in a regular pipe and everything, and so we made it like a mile away, and by the time he figured out what we wanted to do, he reached under the seat, he pulled out a sack, and he threw it back at us. He goes, well, this right here is only $40 if you want that. <laughs> and it was like weed from Africa that was like the best we'd ever had. It was the greatest experience ever. He became a friend of ours, and uh, you know, he was a drummer, and I had other friends that were guitar players. We put him together, and... Yeah, it was really cool, man, like that last year of high school until he got put in jail. And then uh, as a high school kid, that was my first time going to jail to, you know, pick someone up and, you know, anything like that. That was really weird. But yeah, those are, that's about as deep into the other side of the law as I ever got. You know, it's just weed, you know, but yeah. I mean, these days it's no big deal. But so anyway, that was an aside. Sorry about that. But I just no, thought for your own. For your entertainment value, there's another story from the street, right? There um, you go. So as you got into law enforcement, you saw, of course, that it was a good fit. You did it for a long time. How did you progress and, you know, what challenges did you face moving through the ranks to get to be, you know, where you were? Yeah, I, I started out like everybody else, you know, went through the police academy, became a, a uniformed officer, you know, in a marked car, running a beat, answering the radio and, you know, doing some self-initiated stuff. Uh, I took the written test, became a, a specialist, which I, it was, was kind of nice in Cincinnati because you could you basically did the same job, but you got more money if you could do that. You had a different band on your hat and a different badge, but for the most part, it was a pretty good gig. And from there, I moved to the, to the drug unit. And, uh, you know, everybody's like, you'll never get in the drug unit. I was in district two. It was considered kind of the country club district. And it's like, but my partner and I were really active in drugs. And so I went to the drug unit and then she followed me and she came down to the drug unit. And then I, I applied for SWAT and became a, a hostage negotiator uh, and then took another test and became a sergeant and went back to being a, a boss on, on a relief. So it, it was, uh, you know, it was as you learn, as you uh, got more experience, you know, and like I said, we were active. So, you know, when she, once you became a boss, you're like, yeah, okay, I've done that or, you know, been involved in that as opposed to some of the bosses that, you know, they just sat in their cars and waited for the radio to tell them to do something. And it was like, yeah, you don't really know how to be a cop. You don't know, you know, how you can support the people who you are responsible for in that. So it was, like I said, a lot of fun for me, enjoyed it. But eventually had to get out of it. My wife has always been the primary breadwinner and she lost her job in Cincinnati. And so we ended up moving to Texas. But, you know, I had I had a master's degree by that time. I, you know, had all this SWAT experience and, you know, school shootings were on the rise. And so I started a school security consulting business and helped schools around the United States uh, with their physical security. No way. Really? Mm -hmm. 
That is so bitchin', man. Um, I mean, this is going to be, I guess, about the hottest topic I can think of, but uh, what do you think about the Uvalde situation? I mean, anytime there's a lost life, especially with kids, you know, I, I mean, it, it's You saw it's the videos? Horrible... Pardon me? Did you watch the videos? I, I haven't. I, I mean, I've seen plenty, you know, firsthand. I didn't need to, you yeah. know, be dead Just the lack, the lack of response. It, it's worth a look. Like, you know, they have... Uh, they have it all there where they're watching the response and the, when the officers come in, what seems odd to me as a special weapons and tactics officer, I'm sure you would disagree that standing around and doing nothing is a terrible idea. And that's exactly what they did. And they had the ability to shoot through windows and look through windows and do different things. And they didn't do that. And then the moment a bullet got you know, launched in their direction, they retreated. I mean, there was a lot of things that just were awful. And, you know, to me, you know, I watched all of it just so I could understand it. It's not often that I do that, but I really was interested to see, you know, what these people were talking about. And it is, you know, uh, it's easy to see why people were upset. That's all. And, oh, absolutely. And holding, you know what yeah. I mean? That's all. And nothing totally. against law enforcement, but the idea is that, you know, the real purpose of a police officer is to go out and risk their own experience for the benefit of others. And that's where the breakdown seemed to happen for a lot of folks. And, you know, to me, that's what cops do, man. Like they put themselves before other people and, you know, that's just how it is. So um, let me ask you, uh, what's your response been like with the schools? Like, is it in demand? Like, obviously it's very important and stuff, but are schools really taking this seriously? It depends on the school. I, I think some of them are just box checkers. You know, it's like, well, we got to have this. And so, you know, check the box. We did it and, and things like that. And I mean, and it's funny because I always used to tell schools, it's like, you know, you you are mandated and you do. You practice fire drills, you know, what, what once a semester. So two or three times a year you have a fire drill and nobody's died in a fire in a school in like right. 70 years. Right. You know, but we don't, I mean, people are dying all the time in schools from active shooters. And yet you're, oh, well, we don't really want to do that because, you know, Mrs. Smith is given a test in this class. Right? It's like, yeah, I'm sure the shooters be like, well, I can't shoot the school up now because their kids taking tests and stuff, you know. So, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it's just, I mean, one of the things about Uvalde that I, I found interesting is that it really seemed like, and I'm going to use kind of a, an analogy, too many chiefs, not enough Indians, you know, that there was nobody going, you know, okay, I'm in charge and this is what we do. And I, and I remember in Cincinnati, when the first school shooting is SWAT put together a training for every single officer that was like, okay, when this happens in a school, this is what you do. Everybody who's got a vest. So, I mean, sometimes the mm -hmm. investigators didn't wear their vests and stuff like that, but everybody's got a bullet resistant vest. We're going to go in, we're going to use a diamond formation. We're going in to address the shooter. We're stepping over the dead people. We're stepping over the wounded people. We are immediately right. going to address the shooter. But everybody knew that. I mean, we trained for that. And it just I just got the feeling in Uvalde, everybody was like, well, I don't know. Are, are you in charge? Or are, right. well, is it you? Or is it, you know, and, and, and it was paralysis because nobody stood up and said, okay, I'm running things now. You guys go do this. You guys go surround that. You guys do this. You know, and, and there was no tactical response because I think everybody was looking for somebody to say, okay, I'm in charge. 
and I'll take the heat if this goes sideways. Well, it certainly went sideways, and I think everybody's taking the heat for it right now. Do you now. think that that's because there was, uh, wasn't there a DPS or, um, you know, the equivalent to the state troopers as well as the county law enforcement and city? What, I, as I well know as there's... Border Patrol. You know, ah, that's right, yeah. And Border Patrol, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and I think that, yeah, that was kind of, you know, nobody stood up and said, okay, I'm in charge. And, and I, yeah. you know, tactically, here's what we're going to do. And even if it's the wrong decision, you know, you have to make a decision if you're a boss. And how do you, like how do, said, you do that? Multi-agency response. How does that work? Well, and, and see, the other thing I don't know about is, you know, communication, because there were a lot of times when I first started in Cincinnati that we our radios wouldn't communicate with the, the sheriff's department, the county officers or wouldn't communicate with, you know, the the suburban officers and things like that. So did they have the proper communication? Did everybody get on the right channel so they could hear, you know, all right, channel five is now reserved for this incident. Everybody switched to channel five. Is that, and I'm just obviously making up a channel, but is that the case? Were you able to communicate? You know, and if that's the case, you know, if the state troopers are on one frequency and border patrols on another frequency and the Uvalde police department is on one frequency and the Uvalde school police department's on another Nobody knows what the heck's going on. So communication yeah. is incredibly important in any yeah. kind of a critical incident. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and there's no, like, uh, I mean, I guess for the layman like myself, you know, we we have no idea. But, like, if four different law enforcement agencies show up and one of them is not the FBI, who who wins? Like, I mean, you know, who who who's the leader? <laughs> well, I, and it should be the jurisdiction. I mean, it should have been the Uvalde School Police Department. I mean, it was a school. It was in Uvalde. They should have taken the lead on it with support from the Uvalde City Police, you know, the state troopers, the Border Patrol and things like that. What do you want me to do? You know, I'm a Border Patrol. You surround the school. OK, I can do that. OK, we're going to go in and we're going to address the, the individual who's doing the shooting. You know, I, I don't like to criticize because I wasn't there and I don't know what they were thinking or, you know, what impediments they had or they weren't able to communicate or whatever it is. But you sort of wonder, did did they practice for this? Was this something that they ever, you know, like, OK, we're going to we're going to do training on how to address the school shooting? And, you know, and, and it was not uncommon for us to to work with other agencies when I was in Cincinnati. I mean, we trained with LAPD. We trained with the FBI. We we trained with people so that when incidents happened, we knew what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Very good, man. And uh, I mean, this is a terrible thing to even think about. But do you think that this trend will continue and get worse? Or do you think that it's something that we can uh, snip in the bud, you know, by proactive measures like is there a way to stop it what is your thoughts along those lines i i think it's going to continue I, I think every time something like this happens you get people that see it in the media and they want their 15 minutes of fame mm -hmm. and they are obviously mentally ill enough that they think this is a good thing well hey you know look he's on the news so i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna be on the news I, you know, I, I've always said that if it wasn't for drugs, alcohol, and mental illness, you wouldn't need nearly as many cops a, a, as you have. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that until we get a handle on mental illness, you know, it's it's not a gun issue. I, I, I've never believed it was a gun issue. I don't think, you know, taking guns away from everybody is an issue because 
I, I've seen it. You know, Chicago, where my brothers live, some of the stringent gun laws in in the country, right. and people die all the time. And people are, you know, they're having four and five hundred shootings on a weekend, and so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah bad guys are going to get guns. You know, right. the only people that's going to hurt are the, are the people who are law abiding. So it, it's not the guns. Although I'll be honest with it, there are more guns in the United States than there are adults. So yeah. Or dogs, yeah, I, probably, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and, and the average shelf life of a gun is 400 years. So if you wow. think about it, you know, yeah. like my grandfather was a cop 100 years ago, and I still have his gun. That's cool. You know, yeah. so, yeah, I, I don't, I think we have to address the mental illness situation in this country. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can't lock people up. Locking them up isn't doing them any good. But we can't put them in institutions either. You know, the Supreme Court has said, sorry, you can't just mass incarcerate these people you know, so I, I don't I don't know what the what the solution is. I mean, if it was an easy solution, somebody would have come up with it by now. Yeah. So. Do you think that the problem is manufactured or is it uh, some sort of um, direct result of a natural process in society? Because it does seem a little odd. You know, we've witnessed things become a little weird uh, for most of us that are old enough to know the difference. Um you know, some things just don't seem quite right, man. And, you know, that to me smells like a setup. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I believe about, you know, 2% of what I see on television. I, I don't watch television very often. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I always kind of feel like, you know, if the left is giving me one point of view, then it's my responsibility to go, you know, what's what's the other side of this coin? And, mm-hmm. and then make an informed decision. I don't want the media giving me my opinion. I think I'm smart enough that I can develop my own opinion. But I think that's the problem. You see something on television, you see something, you know, on social media, you see something, you know, for those people who still read newspapers, and it's like, well, that's the way it is. And and I'll be the first to tell you, I mean, I remember one night, I'd been on, there was a critical incident, and I'd been working, and I came home about seven o'clock in the morning, my wife had the television on, she was getting ready for work. And she was like, were you there? And I said, yeah. And I sat down and watched it. I'm like, what they're reporting never happened. That's not the way it happened. That's not what went down. And I was Mm -hmm. like, wow, that was a, I was there. I know exactly what happened. And what, what they're telling the public is this happened. Well, no, that didn't happen. So that kind of got me thinking, well, maybe Mm -hmm. the media is more about, you know, selling ads than they are about giving me the truth so yeah and that was actually a question that i was going to ask and i guess you just answered is uh do you think the media plays a role in all of this i do i i you know there's there's always you know the edward r moore award for you know (laughs) excellence in journalism and i i can't tell you many times i said to my wife like Edward R. Murrow would turn over in his grave if he thought that yeah. person was an excellent reporter. It's like, yeah. they never ask the next question. You know, the personal, they'll ask a question, person will say something, and even I'm like, okay, ask him this. And they just let let people off the hook. And it's like, really? Yeah. Come on, be a journalist. You know, yeah. don't we just be a talking head here. So That's right, I, yeah. It's about I'm truth. I'm a big fan of the media. Truth has been lost in all of this. You know, journalism used to be something of a noble career and profession like a philosopher almost like if you could tell the truth accurately and get the good story you were doing great but yeah now it's like uh towing the line and you know uh, pushing agendas and it's really crazy man it is crazy um i did something have you ever heard of something called the landmark forum no 
Oh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, just fun. Maybe someday take a look at it online. But um, it's this really interesting school. I mean, it gets a little funky for some people. It's cult-like in a way because people are so like on fire for their personal transformation. But the entry-level course was uh, the Landmark Forum, it's called. And it's like a really amazing adventure for three days. It's like 400 bucks. At least it was back then. And uh, you go to this place for three days and you spend time with 100 people. Uh, learning about getting in touch with true integrity and what it means to really live in integrity and to recognize the truth behind our actions and feelings and to recognize filters that are put in place uh, by our previous experiences and how we we live, love, and learn through these filters unless we can remove them. But people don't even realize that they're on autopilot half the time. And so I remember when I did this course a really long time ago, it changed my life. It was great. I remember even after the first day, I went home. It was like 11 o'clock at night. I remember turning on the TV and watching like advertisements. And I've been in marketing and doing websites and stuff for a number of years. I like advertising. I think it's kind of neat and all and fun. Um, But man, I was watching these commercials and thinking this is complete bullshit like i mean holy crap and like it really stood out it wasn't just an experience of like oh the product it was like holy crap these people are lying completely lying and so i started to see things differently and that really became you know part of my journey to discovering myself and really deepening my connection with truth and spirit and stuff like that um but yeah man integrity and what it really means and you know, the people out there are just completely unaware that there's things going on that are programming their actions. And it's like they can change those programs and make it completely different. And that's the beauty of it um, and why I shared it. And speaking of which, I definitely want to uh, move forward a little bit here. I'm sorry we got a little sidetracked, but I want to talk a little bit about you know, leaving law enforcement, because you did leave law enforcement, you started your own business, um, you're busy doing different things, but there were some things that kind of led to that. And I wanted to have an opportunity to talk about that and some of the challenges that you faced and how you dealt with those so that, you know, hopefully our listeners can learn and benefit from your experience, because it is quite an extraordinary story. Yeah, I, you know, I felt law enforcement was my passion, my, my purpose for a long time. And, but it wasn't, it wasn't who I was. And I, I saw a number of police officers that had been cops for, you know, 35, 40 years and couldn't retire because their whole identity was tied up into that gun and the, the badge and, and, and their, their job, their authority. And yes, I was disappointed to have to leave law enforcement, but my family was much more important than what I did for a living. And and so when my wife lost her job and we ended up moving to Texas, it was like, well, you know, I'm not happy about it, but what can I do? I mean, you know, my family's number one. And now what can I do based on my training, my education, my experience? And and as I mentioned, I started a, a school security consulting business. And I also coached girls high school basketball because I, I certainly had that that background. And, yeah. and, you know, it was it was it wasn't who I was, you know, and I, I didn't feel like I was any less of a person because I was no longer carrying a gun and a badge. I, mm-hmm. I did what I was supposed to do during that period of time. And 
now it was time to move on and do something else. And I kind of figured I just put it in God's hands and God could, you know, sort of direct me what he wanted me to do. Amen, brother. And uh, so what happened? So like I said, I, I, we moved to, to Texas and I started this consulting business. And uh, not too long after that, I developed cancer and have been dealing with that for over 10 years now. And that really has prevented me from really working because of, of all the treatments I've had, all the surgeries, all the amputations that I've had. On my, I lost my foot in 2018 and oh. my leg amputated right in the middle of the COVID pandemic. I mean, talk about you know, a scary situation when oh your wife just pops you off at the hospital when, you know, can't have anybody with you, you know, we're going to cut your leg off. Oh, great. Thanks. Oh my God. Really? I'm so sorry. Yeah. yeah don't be sorry. That's, you know, that was what I was supposed to have done. So, you know, I've made it through that. Wow, man. And, uh, Jesus, like, and you mentioned God, of course, so you really are embraced you know, with his love, clearly, uh, but you've managed to see a positive in all of this. How do you do that? I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, growing up in the right environment, certainly with my with my parents and, and my brothers. And uh, I think also being part of, for me, it was a team sport. It was basketball. You know, I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and played all the way up until I graduated from college. And I think what team sports and it, like I said for me it's basketball I think any team you're on whether it's your family whether you know it's the people you work with what, whatever it ends up being I think what team sports taught me was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself you realize that on a team that if you don't do your job not only do you let yourself down but you let your teammates down your coaches down your fans down etc and if you think about it the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. So, yes. you know, I, I really, I really think that this is, I always look at that, you know, my cancer journey and even now I'm being treated, I'm treated every three weeks for the tumors that I have in my lungs. And the way I look at that is the drug I'm on is a trial drug and it probably isn't going to save my life, but it may save the life of somebody, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, based on the data that the doctors are gleaning from my blood tests and my scans and things like that. So again, that goes back to being part of something that's bigger than yourself. Do you believe in homeopathy and like alternative medicine practices? I, I have, uh, I have looked into some of those things. I am, I am lucky in a lot of ways. I am, I'm being treated at a university setting, the university of Colorado uh, hospitals. And so I have access to an oncology pharmacy and, I'll just, I'll just give you a quick example. I, I was reading an article about DHA, which is a, a fatty fish oil that's good for your heart. And there were some doctors in Portugal that were doing some studies and found that DHA acted like a Trojan horse in cancer cells. The cancer cells would take up the DHA and it would kill them. And so I went to my uh, oncology pharmacist and I'm like, hey, this seems like a pretty good deal. It's DHA. It's sold in capsules over the counter. And you know, I can eat it in salmon and things like that. What do you think? I want to I want to take this. She's like, let me do some research and get back to you. And she came back and she said, well, you know, you had I had a blood clot in my lung in 2017 because of the, a treatment I was on. And, and, and she said, you know, you're on a blood thinner right now. And she said, unfortunately, DHA thins your blood even more. And you are, you would be at a very high risk of bleeding, you know, having a serious bleeding disorder. So we recommend you not take it. And so I didn't. And, and but that's something I can understand. You know, I don't want to take something just because it's, 
I, and you know, it, it's not a traditional treatment, but it's going to kill me, you know? So it was more of, okay, you know, explain to me in layman's terms, why this isn't good for me. If that makes sense to me, then I'll certainly go along with your recommendation, but yeah, I'm always looking for new ways, new things to try to really? can, feel better. Can I, can I share something with you? Sure. Um, this is an interesting one. Have you ever heard about something called the Rife, R-I-F-E machine? If you have a pencil and a paper, you might want to write this down. Um, there's an author, his name is, and he's a scientist, his name is Royal, like Royal Flush, mm -hmm. Rife, R-I-F-E, like rifle without the L. Royal Rife, this is going to change, I hope, some things for you. Um, I've always hoped that maybe this knowledge can help somebody. So I had some friends when I was younger that they were really nice folks, Mormon family, and uh, my first taste of Mormon families, and they were really great people. But they were into all these cool alternative medicine practices and different things. And like, I didn't really understand it. I was young and kind of dumb and didn't really think about stuff like that. But couple of things stuck out. One is that, uh, you know, I was <laughs> in college, I was looking to get laid or get a girlfriend or something. So uh, I decided to take an aerobics class in a community college where I was doing my math and everything. And I was young. And um, so I went into this class, right? And uh, I thought I was in the back of the class. Like I tried, and there was no other men in there. It was full of cute girls. And I was totally nervous, but it was great. It was like, oh, this is the place for me. So I took my place in what I thought was the back of the room. And God darn it, if that teacher didn't come face to face, nose to nose with me when she came into that class, I was stuck in the front of the class, man. And so I couldn't, you know, I, of course, the ego, you know, pushed me and I kept up as much as I could. But boy, I tore this shit out of my body that night. And uh, so I ripped some cartilage in my chest and uh, I, it was so bad that I couldn't turn my neck or raise my arms. I had a hell of a time even driving my car. And I went over to this friend's house, the people I'm telling you about. And uh, my buddy's name was Rob at the time. Rob, if you're out there. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he's like, his brother had this stuff and it was from a company. There's two things here for you. Actually, one of them is young living essential oils. That's the company that makes the product I'm about to tell you about, but young living essential oils is an amazing company with a story that's going to blow your mind when you find out, which I know you will, and you should, uh, I think you'll benefit from it, but Anyway, he pulled out this jar of stuff. I was taking, you know, heavy-duty narcotic painkillers and muscle relaxers. That shit wasn't cutting it, man. And uh, he goes, try this. And he pulled out this little bottle, this little weird bottle, and it had a blue label, and it said, pain away. And it was like, P-A-N-E away. And I, I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, he goes, no, dude, really. Put it on your, where it hurts. And so I put some on my chest. <laughs> right on my uh, cartilage where it hurt there and my pectoral muscles. I put that stuff on there and like, I kid you not, within seconds, I started to feel the heat. Within minutes, I could move and like a few more minutes and it was like, holy crap, there's no more pain. Like, I can't believe this. It really worked. And so I was sold. I got my first kit of essential oils and, you know, I still play with them a little today, but they do have a lot of value. Um, and the reason they have value, and this is the reason why I wanted to share this, is because 
you know, as you probably know, the body operates on a frequency hertz response kind of cycle thing, you know, and I want to say it's 60 hertz is the natural operating frequency. I could be wrong, but the body operates on a hertz frequency response cycle. So like the circadian rhythm that we have with our heartbeats and, you know, the sun and the moon, the planet and all that crap and every living thing on the planet, really, there's something called the circadian rhythm. You are probably familiar with that. And mm -hmm. I don't really understand it enough to explain it, but you understand it probably better than I do. But anyway, uh, so frequencies, man, like uh, these oils are said to address different ailments at the frequency response level. So that was my first understanding of what I'm about to tell you about. And so another time when I went to their house, they had this weird little machine. <clears throat> and um, this machine had a couple of dials on it and a few buttons and these uh, electrode kind of things that come off. And there was these metal things at the end and uh, there was four of them and you could have two in your hands and two of them went in the water and you put your feet in the water right and it it literally what what this machine does and what's so amazing about it and there's a book out there called the cancer cure that worked and that's the book i'd like you to be able to investigate for your own personal use um but basically it works like this so Royal Rife created a microscope a long time ago that uh, was able to see diseased cells in their living form. And by doing so, he was able to identify certain diseased cells. How? I don't know, but he was able to identify them with colored dye or whatever. And then he figured out using this machine that he could shatter the diseased cells if he hit a certain electromagnetic frequency response with this little machine that he created. And so he figured out that he was able to target and identify diseased cells in the body living and shatter and eradicate those cells with the use of distilled water because it's an empty molecule. And sure enough, he was curing diseases. And so he figured out how to cure cancer supposedly back then. And you know, everyone from the reports that I've read that's, you know, <laughs> maybe I'll be next. Oh, shit. Uh, but everyone that's tried to bring it to the public's attention has either disappeared or been murdered. And so, like, way back in the 50s, they were talking about this kind of stuff. And it might be worth looking into. It's kind of sideline underground knowledge. But um, if it's true, then, you know, it does perpetuate the theory that you know pharmaceutical industry is not really here to help us it's here to enable us to live for as long as they decide based on our budget and uh you know that's the shitty part and you know what if there was a way that through the loving gift of god and our wonderful amazing infinite amazement of nature couldn't have something that would actually fix the problems that we had. You know, to me, that makes more sense. You know, God gives us these things for a reason. And, you know, nature is quite amazing. And like plants and things, I mean, even drugs, you know, in certain cases, you know, for different cultures, medicinal drugs, peyote or whatever, for the Indians, maybe is a good example, uh, can be really amazing things, you know. And I mean, it's quite a fascinating thing, dude. So, like, at the very least, you know, look it up, see if there's something there. But 
the concept of the frequencies and how it works and all that, I think, is based pretty solidly in science. There's uh, something else out there called the water experiment. You ever heard of that? No. Oh, dude. Yeah, this is all knowledge that I think everybody should really have when they're dealing with ailments and illness because um, we really need to embrace the fact that we can hurt and heal ourselves with our thoughts to a certain degree, right? And would you agree with that? Yep. All right. And so uh, the water experiment's really cool. Um, That's a really good one to look at. And it shows that uh, this one guy... uh, uh, Emoto, Maruto, Emoto, I think is his name, Dr. something or another, but he's a really fascinating scientist. He figured out that if you take a drop of water and put it in a Petri dish and then focus emotion on that one drop of water with a real intensity, that you can change its structural dynamics and form right before the eye. And so, like, he would go from, let's say, the, the left negative spectrum to the right positive spectrum extremes, right? So you start with hate, you end with love, everything in the middle. So what he found is the ones that you hate and don't receive loving energy were distorted and ugly. And, like, he just dropped oil and water, and it's all, there's no form to it. But as you go into the loving realm of thought and you're pushing out these feelings of love, it creates, the, you'll, you'll see them for yourself right away when you look it up on Google, but it's like amazing symmetry and unbelievable form and perfect balance and detail like you just can't even imagine. It's, it's amazing. And so you can kind of see that like over time and he flash freezes these drops of water to capture this. So basically, you know, he loves and hates these droplets of, droplets of water, right? and then freezes them to capture their scientific form and then illustrates that indeed these different things respond to different types of stimuli. So even music, like heavy metal music versus classical music, he shows the response. It's really fascinating. And the thing that makes it so interesting is we are primarily water creatures. So like, you know, uh, we're human and we don't really think of it this much until we get thirsty or there's a Gatorade commercial, right? But uh, man, we need water to survive, right? And so it's like, if we really are made so much of water, wouldn't it stand to reason that those same principles of frequency response, of loving energy, hatred, anything in between, creating a response within our own bodies and the bodies of others, possibly, you know, we feel negative and positive vibes, but it really raises the question of how much control we really have, which this is going to lead perfectly into some of the story I'd like to dig into for you, but um, how much control we really have over dealing with pain, adversity, over our health issues and seeming limitations that for some people would just hold them back completely. But then there's people like you, you know, who you haven't really dug into this, but maybe you should. Um, You've experienced some things that were pretty gut-wrenching, honestly, in your journey with cancer. And, uh, you know, from what I understand, you contemplated suicide and had some things that uh, were going on that were pretty heavy. There's a way to get through that. And that's what I think the blessing of this conversation is, really, is you're one of those people that managed to get through this. How did you do it? 
how do other people find a way to get through these struggles and use their uh, debilitating ailment or circumstances as a source of strength? You know, that's the thing that I see in you is that you found a way to create strength from what other people perceive as weakness. Yeah, in, in, in a lot of ways, I think that's true. Um, I, I never really, did I want to die? Yeah. Was it going to be by my hand? No. I, you know, but I certainly prayed to God. I, I was on a, when I had my, when I first found out I had cancer, I had surgery and, and my cancer started on the bottom of my foot of all places. Wow. Um, and then I, I had the tumor excised on the foot and then I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed. And, and, and I had a, a very rare, incredibly rare form of melanoma. And at the time, melanoma was pretty much a death sentence. They didn't really have any kind of therapies or treatments for it. So they, my doctor put me on this drug called interferon. Hey, uh, what, what's the name of your melanoma, just in case there's someone out there that has it? I mean, I don't know the rareness of it, but could you identify it for people? Yeah, it's acral litiginous malignant melanoma. Okay. Uh, um, and, you know, most people think of melanoma as too much exposure to the sun. It affects the melon, the pigment in our skin. And so th this is an entirely, this, this melanoma appears on the bottom of your feet or the palms of your hands. And there's even a rarer form of melanoma. And I don't know the scientific name that appears in your mucous membranes. So in your nose or your mouth or something like that, but it's still melanoma. So, so I have this rare form. And so my doctor put me on this drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. It was not a cure. And I took a weekly injection of this drug and it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. Oh so imagine gosh. having the flu every week for oh. five years. <laughs> And that wasn't a cure. And I remember when my oncologist suggested that, I looked at her like, you, you must be wow. nuts. You know, human beings, that, that's, you're asking something. She's like, do the best you can. And so I, you know, there were, there were certainly days where I was so sick of being sick that I did pray to die. It was like, come on, God, just take me out of this. I am, I'm tired of this. I, I, I'm tired of having the flu every week. And, but he didn't. And, what I think he did is give me the strength to, to, to tackle that, to handle it, to, you know, make it one more day. And I, I think you realize in that situation, you don't think long-term, you think today. And, and I, I've got to win the day. And I, I remember when I was first diagnosed, I think I went through all the stages that we would associate, you know, with grief, you know, first awesome. it was denial. I can't possibly have cancer. I've done everything right in my life. And then you get mad and then you sort of bargain with God. At least I did. My, our daughter was in high school at the time. And it was like, look, just let me live long enough to see her graduate from high school. Uh -huh. And then I got a little down. And then I just got to a point where it was like, you know what? This sucks, but I'm going to have to embrace this suck. Yeah. I, I don't like these cards that I've been dealt, but I'm going to have to play them to the best of my ability. And, and I've been doing that, I, I like to think, for the last 10 years. I don't have all the answers, you know, I, I don't want anybody to sit here and think that with you and I talking that, you know, there's an S on my chest and, you know, I wear, no, a cape of course and, not, you know, I, I have bad days, you know, I have, I, I'm still being treated, you know, I cry, I get down, I feel sorry for myself, 
but I just don't let myself stay there because I know it's your mind dictates your body, you know, and if you can, if you can handle your mind, if you can get your hands around your mind, there was a basketball coach when I was growing up by the name of Bobby Knight. You may have remembered Bobby Knight uh, who, who coached in Indiana and, and Knight had a saying that was mental is to physical as four is to one. So here's this great coach teaching elite athletes to, you know, use their bodies to be great players on the court. But what he was really saying with that quote is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important than your physical body will ever be. And I always tell people, be very careful what you think, because we all become what we think. You know, the, the same part of your brain, I'll use a basketball analogy. You know, if you go out and you shoot, you physically shoot free throws to get better, there's a part of your brain that lights up. Well, the same part of your brain lights up when you think about shooting those free throws. So if you constantly put garbage into your mind, you know, I can't do that. I'm terrible at that. I'll never be good at that. Eventually, you're going to hardwire your brain to the point where, yeah, you're right. You, You aren't very good at that because you told yourself and your brain has hardwired itself to not be good at that. So I think a big part of it is controlling your thoughts. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I have negative thoughts. Of course. We all do. We're human beings. But you need to control those and try to make something positive out of those negative thoughts. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. When did you first realize that that was even an option? Like, I mean, you know, when we're in the pits of despair, of course, you know, it's hard to reach. You know, I, I always put it when I was in my depression, like I always put it to my psychologist, like I feel like I'm in a dark, deep hole and I can't even see the fucking light, man. There's no light. I, I would really just like to see the light, man. Like, could you show me that there's an end to this tunnel, please? Like, and so I've dug myself out of that. And sure enough, you know, I'm in the light now and I'm not in that pit of darkness anymore. And I remember, you know, there was a time for me that it just was, you know, I decided to embrace what I was being taught and apply it, you know, and he was right because I, I went to the guy for help. You know, I was I was out of options. I didn't have anyone else to turn to and didn't know what else to do. So I'm like, man, I'm feeling like uh, life is not as long term as I thought it was going to be. I need to get some help before, you know, it gets any worse. And so that's what led me to do that. But, you know, for me, it was a matter of distinctly deciding one day you know like hey i really am i'm gonna make this happen and then another day you have to remind yourself i'm gonna make this happen and then another day i'm gonna make this happen that's what it was like for me is it like that for you yeah you know i I guess i learned this kind of early on when when i was about 15 years old i I had a number of knee excuse me number of knee surgeries because of a basketball injury and i remember when i went back playing basketball my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind. You know, things like, hey, you're probably a step slower after these surgeries and college coaches aren't going to be interested in reaching out about recruiting you. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I'm still playing at an elite level and coaches are still contacting me about the possibility of playing for their college or university. And I realized I had to change the narrative. And and people ask me, you know, how do you do that? How do you go from being a person who sees the glass as half empty to being the person who sees the glass as half full. 
Yes. And I used to just say you need to change the narrative, but I've, I've done some research. I, I continue to read about this subject and I, I've, I've got a different take on it now. And, and the take is this. So, you know, you, it depends on the type of person you are. So if you're the kind of person who kind of gets motivated by somebody telling you, you know, you're lousy, you stink, you're no good, and you take that and you use it to motivate you, then that negative, uh, those negative thoughts that come into your brain, those are not things you need to change into something positive because you're using that negativity to make something positive in your life. The where I am, and because that that really doesn't do much for me. I mean, you can tell me that all day. I, I don't really internalize that. What I do is I need to change the narrative. And and when I say I, I need to change the narrative to you know I am good. I am going to be successful. I am going. So that works for me. So that's another set of people. And then there are, is kind of a third group that needs some distance. You know that can't say I. That's a little bit too close. That's you know that's that's too close to the vest. They need to say you. You you need you know they they get a little distance there. You need you know to improve. You are going to be good. You are going. And so they they it's it's more of a third person thing than it is an I thing. So it depends on the type of person that you are. If you really motivate by people telling you negative things that you're lousy, then use that negativity. If you're a person that says like me. I need, you know, I need to change that narrative. I need to put something good in my mind, in my brain. Or if you're somebody that's like, oh, that's a little too close for me. I need some distance. You will be successful. You will be good. You will be. So it, it really kind of depends on the type of person you are as to how you flip that around. And then I'll, I'll give you two quick stories. Please. Because like, like I said, I, I have bad days. I feel lousy. I cry, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. The first story I read about a professor at Johns Hopkins University back in the 1950s who did an experiment with rats. And as soon as I say that, everybody gets, oh, rats. And like, no, just hang with me on this one. So yeah. what he did is he took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to sink and to drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he took those exact same rats and he put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats, on average, treaded water for 60 hours. Now think about that. First time, 15 minutes. I'm just not going to be, you know, I'm not going to fail. I'm just not going to fail. I'm going to die. It's, it's going to be over for me. The second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, wow. I think we talked about this just a minute ago, the importance of hope in our yeah. lives. We have to yeah. believe it. You know, maybe not today, maybe not next week, maybe not even next year, but at some point in time, life will get better for us if we stay mm -hmm. on a certain path or we change things or whatever. And the second thing was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. Now, don't get me wrong. I think everybody has you know, kind of a breaking point. But I think that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. And my wife works with a young man who's a former Navy SEAL, and he's kind enough on my off weeks of treatment to call me and see, you know, check in on me and see how I'm doing. And sometimes we'll talk about what the SEALs call their 40% rule, which basically says that if, if you're done, if you're at the end of your rope, if you can't go on, 
you're only at 40% of your maximum and you still have another 60% left in reserve to give to yourself. So whenever I get into those dark places, I remember those stories and they kind of help me to at least try to put one foot in front of the other and try to keep moving forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And all of this stuff that you've gone through has led to um, a desire to help other people as well, right? Like, um, I believe you have a book and I would like to talk about the book and see if there's some things there that people can uh, glean from. And we want to introduce how they can get to it at the end of the show, of course. But uh, could you talk a little bit about how you got to write your book and what it's about and how it can help other people that are struggling in different ways to really find their true purpose and, you know, to live what I believe you call an extraordinary life. I, I do. Uh, the book is called Sustainable Excellence, The Ten Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And it's really a book that was born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former player that I had coached in high school who had moved to the area with her fiance, where my wife and I live. And the four of us had had dinner one night. And I remember after dinner, I said to her, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents and living that reason. So that was the first conversation. And then I had a young man reach out to me on social media and ask me what I thought were the most important things that he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life. And I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help mm -hmm. others. Not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important. But I wanted to see if I could go maybe a little bit deeper with him. So I took some time and I eventually had these, these 10 ideas, these 10 thoughts, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And awesome. then I kind of stepped back and I was like, well, you know, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally during the three month period after I had my leg amputated while I was healing and before I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how the book came to be. That is cool, man. Wow. Very cool. Gee, many Christmas. Man, so you, gosh, I can't imagine being able to focus at times like that. How'd you do that, man? You know, I, I think it was, in all honesty, <laughs> I, I really believe I was supposed to write the book. I mean, people had continued to say, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I was continuing to put them off. And there's sort of an old joke that goes, when we talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. So God <laughs> has never talked to me. Uh, but I think what God does is put people in your path who continue to make the same suggestion or the, or the same thought. And yeah. it's up to you whether you want to go down that path or not. I mean, again, you know, go back to, you know, God gives you free will. You don't want to write the book. Don't write the book. But, I, you know, I always say, you know, it was kind of God's way of saying, hey, dummy, I'm telling you to write a book. Go ahead and write it. Well, yeah, you know, I'm, give, I'm giving it to you here. And so I really felt it was something that was bigger, again, going back to, you know, something that was bigger than me. And so I, I just, it was something I was supposed to do. And, you know, I, people ask me, how, how did you write the book? I'm like, 
I gave myself two rules and only two rules. The first one was I will write a minimum of one page every day, Monday through Saturday. I took Sunday off. And the second one was I will not edit anything until I have the first draft. And, and so I, I ended up, you know, writing stuff and it would be like, this is absolute garbage. It was, this is terrible. And then the next day I'd write something that was good. And then maybe the next day I'd write something that was good. And then I write garbage again. And then, and so, you know, and then you have a draft and, and it's like, okay, now I can go back and say, okay, all this garbage is coming out. You know, this yeah. is going to be part of it. And what I had left with, and I was very lucky. I got hooked up. I did not self-publish this book. I got hooked up with a, a gentleman who used to be an undercover narcotics investigator, became a police chief in Louisiana and one of his buddies said, hey, would you mind coming out to California and putting on a presentation for authors who want to understand police tactics so they can incorporate them in their books and kind of under, you know, make it seem like they know what they're talking about? And he was like, yeah, sure, you know, free trip to California. I'll be happy to do that. He goes out there. He ends up meeting his wife, <laughs> who is a, I think by now, Leah's got to be, a, she's like a 45 best uh 45-time best-selling New York Times fiction writer. Awesome. And so he gets out of law enforcement. The two of them uh, form a not-for-profit publishing company. So I had access to editors. I had access to cover designers, layout artists, and things like that, that you, know, you would have at a, you know, at a big publishing company and things like that. So I was able, you know, and, and the editors would come back to me. They'd be like, well, you should take this out or you should expand on this. And Obviously, I've never had a baby before in my life, but this book was as close as I've, yeah. you know, I've ever come. And I would be like, "Oh, you know, how dare you make those?" And, and uh -huh. I was like, "Wait a minute, you know." That's what you hired him for. Yeah, this is what the. I mean, that would be like them coming to me and telling me how to be a cop. And it's like right. you have no experience right. in that. So yeah. I always used to say, "Well, let me sleep on it." And I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the time, I'd get up the next morning and be like. Yeah, they okay, right. you're right. I'll take this yeah, out or I'll you know, right. expand this and write more. So it was just a great experience for me. Yeah, thank God. And I mean, for those out there that might be thinking about writing a book or something, there are other ways to do it uh, that don't involve magical circumstances. <laughs> there know, are. Like yeah. Five, Fiverr, for example, is awesome. I've used Fiverr for things over the years, and they are great. Um, you can get all kinds of stuff done really cheap on Fiverr. I mean, really, you know, editing and different things that, uh, you know, some folks, if you don't know how to do it, there's someone out there that does and right. you can find them real easy if you know where to look. Um, so just real quick, um, we're just about ready. We're way over time, but I didn't want to cut this short because I think you have a really important message and by golly, it's my podcast. So I guess we can go as long as we want to, as long as you don't have an appointment. <laughs> I do have a hard stop at 10 o'clock. So I, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I, I've got another one in 30 minutes too, actually. Okay. Um, but I wanted to take just a few minutes if you could, and if you could define success uh, in a way that uh, most people will understand, because I think a lot of us associate success with financial gain. And it's really not just about that. Um, obviously, it's important, but how would you define success and helping to see someone see the possibility for them to achieve success? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll be honest with you, I've heard a lot of definitions of success, but I've never heard a better definition than this one. And this comes from a man by the name of John Wooden, who was the basketball coach at UCLA 
when I was a kid, when I was growing up back in the in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And this is the definition. And, and you'll notice, I mean, John Wooden is probably one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all times. This definition says nothing about winning. And here's the definition. Success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing that you did your best to become the best that you're capable of becoming. And I love that definition, and I've never heard a better one. Again, it doesn't say anything about financial. It doesn't say anything about winning. It doesn't say anything about anything other than peace of mind in knowing you did your best to become the best you're capable of becoming. If you can do that, then you've been successful. But I think the problem is so many people compare themselves with other people. That's and right. by doing that, they're like, well, I'm not as successful as Terry is or that person you know, makes more money than I do or lives in a nicer house or what, you know what? That None of that matters. I, Mother Teresa had a great saying that God never asked us to be successful. He just asked us to be faithful. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I love that because it's like, you know what? Your journey is your journey. It's not your neighbor's journey. It's not the person you work with journey. It's not the person you go to school with's journey. Your journey is your journey. And, and comparing yourself, and I've certainly seen this, I, I've even been on podcasts with people who are like, well, you know, uh, my suffering is, you know, not as, as bad as yours or is worse than yours. And, that, you know, and I always say to people, like, why, why are you comparing? You know, my suffering is my suffering. Your suffering is your suffering. It, it, they, there's no way they come into contact with each other. There's no way they have anything to do with each other. Don't compare yourself to other people. I, I always tell people, if you can get better today than you were yesterday, then you're probably on the road to success. You know, you don't have to be better than Johnny or better than Sally or or anything like that. That's not what life is about. But we do that all the time. We compare ourselves to other people and then we get anxious and we get depressed because we're, we're not like them or we don't have the money they have or we don't live in the house or drive the car. None of that matters. Yeah. You get a better version of yourself. And half of it's all illusion anyway, man. Like, I mean, most of the things that we see on social media, I mean, the the term selfie, I think, is one of the most irritating terms of our time. You know, I want to take a selfie. It's like, okay, I'm sorry. Did you say that you want to exercise your narcissistic tendencies? Got it. (laughs) And and you're absolutely right. You know, and I've always told our daughter this, that, you know, and, and this used to drive my wife nuts. We would go to a party, you know, a business function, and, you know, we would go in, and I, I would tell my wife, say, okay, when, I, when we come out, when we leave the party, I will be able to tell you five things about each of your coworkers. And I said, the other part of it is they will know nothing about me. And so I would just go into a party and was like, okay, I'm, I'd pick somebody, I'd go up to them, and I'd be like, what do you do when you're not working? You know, oh, you've got a family. Tell me about your family. Tell me. And I would come back and sit, sit in the car and I'd be like, okay, so for Sally, blah, 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 blah. For John, blah, 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 blah. And, it was, and they would go, she would go into work on Monday or something like that. And they'd be like, you know, your husband is the nicest guy. Well, I was nice because I fed into their narcissistic tendencies. Yeah. That, you know, you like talking about yourself. I'm just going to ask you questions. And the funny thing is, is rarely did anybody ever reciprocate with that question. Well, what do you like to do when you're right, not working? Right. Nobody would say that. Right. It was hilarious. But, but when they do, it's really cool. And I know the difference myself. I totally get that. That's a great example, actually. And, you know, it's one of the things that I hope to kind of change with all of this is uh, helping people to want to reach out a little bit more. And, like, the whole idea is that if you're not learning about 
the other person and they're learning too much about you or whatever, you know, there's a lack of balance. And I mean, it all comes down to good communication, balance, you know, a healthy uh, perspective and, you know, love, I mean, is yeah. an element of love and, and all communication really, as long as it's healthy and wholesome. Um, it's really quite beautiful actually when you stop and think about it. Uh, and honestly, I mean, for those out there who might think, oh, geez, well, you know, success and, you know, celebrate the small wins and, and people don't realize how much that they really do have to be grateful for. And maybe it's good to take an inventory of that, uh, you know, just to understand, you know, hey, wait a second, I'm not as bad as I thought, you know what I mean? And um, yeah. yeah, that's a good thing. So where can they find your book? And do you have a website that we can share? I do. The, the book, Sustainable Excellence, is available pretty much anywhere you can get a book online, you know, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks, wherever you get your books, you can get Sustainable Excellence through that. I have a website called Motivational Check. Uh, every day I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought comes usually a question about maybe how you can apply that thought into your life. Uh, I have recommendations for videos to watch, books to read, my social media uh, links are up there as well. And, and you can leave me a message at motivationalcheck.com. Perfect. That is awesome, man. You know, it's funny to me, um, and I've interviewed quite a few authors as well, uh, Nobody ever says to go to the library. Isn't that funny? Like, where can they find your book? Not one person has said the library. <laughs> well, it's funny because there's a whole, I, I mean, my, my book is registered with the, the Library of Congress, but there's a whole different dynamic to have your book put in the library that I didn't realize. And it, it, and it, it can cost you money and stuff. So I can understand, really? you know, like uh -huh. if you went and donated it, that would be one thing. But, oh, that's you a know, good idea. Yeah, wow, man. We just got this uh, case of books at our doorstep here. We're not sure where they came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, drop, you know, 10, 20 books into the book deposit, you know, on the outside of the library. There you go. Man, that's a great idea, actually. <laughs> what a smart way <laughs> to bypass the system and get your book in the library. I right. love it. That is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, closing words. Uh, is there anything just in closing, Terry, that we might have missed or something on your heart that you might feel is important to share? Like for anyone listening, is there a final message that we can share just to give them something special to, to end the conversation with? I, I always like to end, if I can, with this story. I, I've always been a, a big fan of Westerns growing up. My mom and me dad too. used to let me stay up late and watch, you know, Gunsmoke and Bananas. Yeah, man, right on. My favorite was always Wild Wild West. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. You may may have seen it. It was a huge yeah. blockbuster. Starred Val Kilmer as John Doc Holliday and Kurt yep. Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc mm -hmm. Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made-up characters just for the movie. Oh, and no. Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty mm -hmm. much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt, most of his adult life, had been some form of a lawman. And somehow these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds come together and form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died at that sanitarium, and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. Wyatt, at this point in his life, is destitute. He has no money. He has no job. He has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. 
And in this almost last scene in the movie, the two men are talking about what they want out of life. Doc says, you know, when I was younger, I was in love with my cousin, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal. There's just life. And get on with living yours. Todd, you and I probably know people. There's probably people out there listening to us. They're sitting back and saying, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. But when exactly. this occurs, I'll have a successful life. But You're when right. this arises, I'll have a significant life. I call it, I call it the reach. Yeah, yeah. What I, I guess what I'd like to leave your audience with is this. Don't wait. Don't nope. wait for life to come to you. Nope. Get out there. Find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Yes. Use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do, at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Absolutely. So take the chance and the effort. Follow your instinct and intuition. Uh, it's given to us for a reason, you know, right? Like, I mean, we get these feelings, a uh, propensity to do something. We might not understand it, but those are some of the ways that God uses us in the world, right? And helps exactly. direct us. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So listen, Terry Tucker, a man with a plan who's been through some amazing life experiences. And I just want to thank you really sincerely, you know, for sharing this way and for letting us kind of glimpse into the mindset of a law enforcement officer. And I want to bring that back, you know, because it is important today to, to realize, you know, these are people that care enough to go out and sacrifice themselves and just like in society, if you focus on the criminality and the people who are causing the problems who happen to represent the lower proportion of people, not the higher percentage, uh, you know, it's like you're going to get hung up, but there's way more good than bad. So here's a guy, you know, that's told his story. He's a real guy, just like all those other men and women that are out there fighting, you know, to help keep society whole. So don't get hung up, people. They're, they're just people like you. And, uh, you know, your story really of battling cancer and you're continuing to uh, manage, you know, a mindset that's quite remarkable. I, I really uh, urge people to check out your book and learn more for their own lives. It sounds like you could really help a lot of people with those 10 pr simple principles, 10 simple principles. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I appreciate you having me on, Todd. It was great talking with you. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I hope we get to talk again. I hope so, too. Right on, man. You have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for tuning in to the Toddcast Show. If you found today's episode helpful and meaningful, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on what's next. Remember that the Toddcast Show is all about community and connection. So follow the podcast on your preferred social platform to keep updated on everything I've got in store. Also check out ToddCastShow.com to find out more and stay connected with me, Todd Mira. Be sure to tell your friends and family about the ToddCast Show so the podcast family can continue to grow and share on an international level. See you over on the next episode.
Hi, I'm Todd Murat, host of the Toddcast show, and I want to share something personal with you today. Throughout my own life, I've struggled with issues I didn't even realize I had. Things like depression, past trauma, PTSD, and feeling disconnected from the people I loved the most. It took me hitting rock bottom to realize I couldn't fix myself alone. I needed help to unravel the tangled knots within my life, find myself again, and become stronger in the areas I was weakest. It wasn't an overnight transformation, but with time, I learned to change my thinking, my attitudes, and my entire paradigm for the better. I learned that it's good to ask for help, and that's why I want to tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of the Toddcast Show. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and the best part, it's 100% online. You can participate from anywhere, anytime that works for you. It's simple to get started. Simply answer a few questions about your specific needs and personal preferences in therapy, and BetterHelp will match you with the perfect therapist from their network. It's really that easy. You can message your therapist anytime you need support and schedule a live session when it's convenient for you. BetterHelp is committed to ensuring that you find the perfect match to guide you along your journey to well-being. As someone who went through therapy and came out way ahead of where I started, I want to invite you to take this step to a healthier, happier you today. My life was transformed through therapy, and yours can be too. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you'd expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is hand-picked for you, all at a shockingly affordable price. And as a special offer for our listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month by using the special link, betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. That's betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. You don't have to face life's challenges alone. BetterHelp is here to support you through the big and small issues of your life in a way that can really make a huge difference, both short and long term. Take the first step towards a healthier, happier you. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast to get started today.